one of the most unforgettable stories in American history. On the morning of January 17, 1977, convicted murderer Gary Gilmore was sentenced to be shot to death. Having been found guilty of the crime of criminal homicide, murder in the first For Gary, degree, it was the end of a journey which began the day he got out of jail. Mama! Shake it! You can't have it all in five minutes, Gary. You have to earn it, bit by bit. You have to make us the right good stuff in you. <laughs> Don't you dare mess up. For a time, it even seemed it might work both for Gary Gilmore and Nicole Baker, the new girl in his life. I don't want to just jump in bed with you. I want to make love to you. With you, I feel like I'm in the right place for the first time. <laughs> you come in here with this welfare witch who's living on the government forever. I love her. All right, Gary. While two women fought for his love, Gary fought his own anger. You want to fight? Get out back. Gary's dangerous. He needs help. Jimmy, stop, Jim! I'll never hit you again, sweetie. I'm sorry. <laughs> you want to die? You're going to kill us all! Pull over! And after the anger came the violence. I gave Nicole this real sweet little loving under Derringer to protect herself. Too bad, partner. And after the violence came the killings. This one's for me. Well, what kind of an idiot would do that? This one's for Nicole. Gary did it. Gary, you commit a murder on Monday. You commit a murder on Tuesday. I wasn't about to wait till Wednesday rolled around. And the events that led to the execution of the century. What would you say if I told you I deserve to die? I don't want to ask myself whether your death will be more profitable to me than your life. I prefer to be shot. Gary! Gary Gilmore, I love you! Gary Gilmore. I love you. His crimes were unforgivable. His story is unforgettable. Who's gonna play me in the movie? Tommy Lee Jones plays Gary Gilmore. The Executioner's Song, based on the number one bestseller by Norman Mailer. In the fall of 1982, a true crime drama premiered on NBC that would mark a change in the way adult content would be presented on network television. The movie was Lauren Schiller's searing adaptation of Norman Mailer's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Executioner's Song. Chronicling the final year of criminal-turned-murderer Gary Gilmore, the Executioner's Song broke new ground in its depiction of rural America and the cycle of violence, despair, and retribution it breeds. As Gilmore, Tommy Lee Jones gives a performance that still ranks with the best of his long and distinguished career. He achieves through silence and stillness what Mailer achieved through words, that is, locating the humanity in a man who fell from early on that he was not worthy of the redemption he was offered. The Executioner's Song has a grade A pedigree that includes fine supporting performances by Christine Lottie, Eli Wallach, and an erotically charged performance by Rosanna Arquette as Gilmore's equally damaged girlfriend, Nicole. Other technical highlights include cinematography by Freddie Francis, editing by Richard A. Harris and Tom Wolfe, and songs by Waylon Jennings.
What some people may not know is that director Schiller prepared a more explicit and disturbingly intimate version of the Executioner's song for international theatrical release. Over the years, that version became something of a collector's item, popping up on cable television in the middle of the night or appearing and disappearing from video store shelves. The director's cut of the Executioner's song has probably been talked about more than it has been seen. Thanks to CBS Home Entertainment and Paramount Home Entertainment, Lawrence Schiller's preferred version and full vision of the Executioner's song is now available on DVD. Tonight, I am honored to have filmmaker Lawrence Schiller on to talk about this landmark movie and his partnership with the late, great Norman Mailer. Will you please welcome to Back by Midnight filmmaker Lawrence Schiller. Right, I'm, sitting in a little, I'm sitting in a little cafe uh, with my grandchildren at Laguna Beach, so I'm happy to be on board. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for uh, for joining us. Well, before we, we talk about the Executioner song, uh, tell tell us how you met up with Norman Mailer and how that partnership uh, developed. Well, you have to understand that I come from a journalistic background. I At age 15, I was working... Uh, alongside of Andy Lopez for Acme News Service in New York City. And by the time I was 16, uh, the New York Times writer, Jacob Deshaun, had already called me a pro at 16. So what happened was I started as a photojournalist for life, Perry Match, you know, the London Sunday Times as a very, very young age. I hid my, I hid my age from everybody uh, because at that time, you know, you didn't have, they didn't have to see you. To hire you, all they needed to know is whether you took good pictures. But the short and long of it is, by the time you know I get to about 1970, I'm like uh, my pictures are like different heads on the same bodies, and I'm like a young tennis player that's played out by the time he's 30 years old. So I was looking uh, for a new way to reinvent myself. You know, that's a word I use now, but then I certainly uh, didn't look at it that clearly. But I was certainly struggling. <laughs> Uh, to find uh, a new way, you know. Uh, and unfortunately or fortunately, Life Magazine decided to go out of business, uh, and I had to find a new profession. So I had to walk across the street from one street corner to another. I guess I really never knew how long it would take or how difficult, but uh, I went looking for the top writers in the world that would write books or stories based upon journalistic ideas that I had. And the, the very first is a book that I did uh, when I asked Albert Goldman to write the biography of Lenny Bruce uh, in 1967 uh, or 68 called Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. And oh, wow. that, came, that came about after uh, Tom Wolfe had interviewed me uh, for my uh, uh, involvement uh, with uh, – the Merry Pranksters seem to be the Grateful Dead, uh, and Ken Kesey and Owsley uh, Stanley III. And then I read Tom Wolfe's book, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and I realized, Jesus, a great writer doesn't have to be there to write a great book, because Tom was never there. <laughs> uh, so I asked Albert Goldman to write the biography of Lenny Bruce, which became a bestseller. Mm-hmm. And that kind of launched me into this concept could I take my journalistic ideas, bring a great writer to the table, because I certainly wasn't a good writer, uh, 
uh, and I didn't want to be a writer in those days. Uh, so the first thing I did is I, you know, at one point I was putting together photographs of Marilyn Monroe for a big coffee table book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to the publisher, get me Gloria Steinem or get me Norman Mailer. And they said, why? And I said, because Marilyn Monroe in 1972, 10 years after her death, has to be controversial. And, of course, they got me Norman Mailer to write uh, the, the text for my book. And that's how my relationship started with Norman. So by the time we get to 1976, you know, I'm already uh, making a couple films with Chuck Free's production, uh, just finishing uh, producing and uh, collaborating with David Green on this trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, I've already done a film on the Wright brothers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I read this newspaper article uh, about this uh, con who's convinced his girlfriend uh, to commit suicide. And he's going to, he took his life or attempted to, and she left two kids behind. So I said, wow, you know, what's this all about? And I got on an airplane, went to Utah spent six months interviewing, delving into the story, and uh, asked my friend Barry Farrell to come aboard uh, to be my corner man because I was kind of running out of questions and ideas, uh, acquiring rights, interviewing everybody. And then I published uh, an interview with uh, uh, Gilmore, which was done just before his execution, uh, in Playboy magazine. At that time, the longest interview Playboy had ever published. Mm. And I took that interview and I sent it to Norman Mailer. And I said, Norman, uh, take a look at this. And the next thing I know is he's on the phone to me and he says, when can I meet the girl? Mm. And the next thing after that is we were ice skating in Central Park. When did, so I'm assuming so Norman took over. He, he took over and, and he decided to, uh, uh, through this, through this article, he, uh, was able to ex- extrapolate what became the the, well, the, the book. If you read the if you read the afterword of the book, you'll see uh, that there were some sixteen thousand pages of interviews that I had done. Right. Uh, seven and a half months, I think. Over my memory is right, over one hundred and sixty people. He then went to Utah, interviewed about a dozen, met of the key people, and then he and I collaborated, and he wrote the book, The Executioner's Song. And obviously from that, uh, Norman and I planned that we would make either a feature movie or a television miniseries and, uh, based on the book. Right. When, the book won the, when the book won the Pulitzer, you know, it was more people knocking at our door. Uh, but the, the, the irony of it uh, was they either didn't want me as a producer-director or they didn't want Norman as a writer or they didn't want this or that. Right. Uh, so, you know, there was uh, the normal thing of how do you get a movie made, but we got it made. Well, so so then so then when ha- so it's around about 1980, 81 when this is all happening. And so what led you and Mr. Mailer to uh, to NBC uh, for, the, for well, the TV movie version? Well, I mean, Paramount wanted to do it as a feature, but they didn't want me to direct mm-hmm. uh, uh, somebody else uh, wanted uh me to direct, but didn't want Norman to write. Uh, and so we were, you know, knocking our heads together. How do we put the combination? And finally, quite honestly, Norman gave up. He said, Larry, you've got really no obligation to me. Uh, you know, uh, go make the film. I've told 
the story my way, you know, you're part of the story. You go make the film and tell your story. So I went to NBC, Perry Lieber. He agreed uh, that I would produce and direct. We hired Tracy Keenan Wynn to write the screenplay, who had just written Diary of Jane Pippen. The screenplay was a fine screenplay, but not really to my liking. Uh, Mailer uh, then uh, did his own adaptation uh, and uh, in a Writers Guild arbitration received a single credit and I made the screenplay written by uh, Norman. And uh, when you all decided to adapt it, to adapt the book, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a truly involving epic book. What did you yeah. want to take from the book in film? You Obviously you knew you couldn't do everything from the book. So what was the key, the, well, what were the essentials that you wanted from the book to be in the film? Well, this is very easy. You know, it might be difficult for somebody, but you have to remember, I was part of the story. Right. I had experienced it. I had, I was there. I met the real people while the story was happening. I was at Gilmore's execution. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, with Vern D'Amico. I was with Brenda. I was with all these people. So inside of me, inside of the fiber, by osmosis, I knew the story that I wanted to tell. And Norman was able to take those scenes that I wanted to tell and put them in a coherent manner in which they came alive off the page. And, you know, he's a skillful novelist. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and dialogue defines character. And, and I had this concept, less is more. I said, this film has to smell right. doesn't have to look right. It has to smell right. It has to be alive. And, of course, there were lots of really uh, roadblocks doing the film for television in those days. Like you couldn't own a, you couldn't hold a beer can that had a label on it. Well, I fought with the network, and I said, what do you mean? I said, you're going to destroy the reality of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book that's all based on truth by having the character hold a beer can that says beer? I said, no, he's got to hold a Budweiser or a Michelob or whatever. And that was a major that was a major breakthrough to convince the network that this book was so important that it was so powerful that you could not destroy the value. And then there was language, you know. Certainly we couldn't get every word in that we wanted, but we made major breakthroughs. We were right. able to push the envelope. Because again I would fight with what we called standards and practices. And I'd say, hey, you want Gary Gilmore to 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 say this word? Well, you know, a con doesn't say that word. He uses this word. And right. I said, again, you can't destroy reality. Well, you know, I, you know, I, I fought those battles, and I won at least 51% of them. And, uh, and Norman and I, uh, you know, then uh, he wrote a screenplay, and I started casting it. And, you know, I got one of the great casting directors of all time, Stallmaster, who had done, you know, everything from... Uh, Henry Fonda films, you know, uh, Mark Rydell, Sidney Pollack. Uh, you know, I was so fortunate as a photographer. You know, I'd fallen in love with Freddie Francis's work. And when I saw French Lieutenant's Woman, I got on a fucking plane and I flew to England and I handed him a script and I said, Freddie, read this. You've got to be my cinematographer. And that's the way I was with everybody, you know. Uh, originally, I had Nick Nolte in mind to play Gilmore. But Sue Mangers uh, didn't like the idea, his manager. So, you know, Tommy Lee was my second choice. And, of course, 
the first thing I said to Tommy was less is more. And he says, I love that. Less is more. He says, mm-hmm. now you're giving an actor a window to work. And I remember, uh, you know, him and I walking down the street, walking out of uh, Frankie and Johnny's restaurant in New York City, going to see a play together. We were actually going to see Susie Kurtz uh, as a possibility to play Brenda. I mean, we eventually cast Christine Lottie. But, you know, he was walking down the street and he said to me, uh, oh, Larry, you know, how, do, how does Gilmore walk? You know, what's the walk all about? And I said, well, Tommy, I don't know what it's all about. All I know is that if you've been in prison 20 years, you've been buck-fucked an awful lot. And his, 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 you know, his face lit up. That's the way I work with the actors. I give them a visual image, and I let them take it. And, uh, uh, and tell me, tell me about the, the casting, the, the the finding of Rosanna Arquette, because uh, just a few months after this, she, she's going to come out in the John Sales film, Baby, It's You. So th- this, these two well, performances really put her yeah. on the map. Uh, well, number one, uh, she got the role, Baby, It's You, because I was sending over to Paramount. I was sending over to Paramount the daily uh, of it. Uh, the contract said that I had the choice of the lead and the network had the choice of the second person. Then I would have the choice of the third person and they'd have the choice of the fourth. I mean, because they don't let a, you know, a neophyte director like me in those days run away with it. Right. So, you know, uh, they liked Tommy Lee. Uh, they agreed. So they had now the second choice. So, you know, they gave me some very fine actresses, uh, Priscilla Presley, Annette O'Toole, but none of them were the real girl. You know, I, I met the real girl. Mm-hmm. I knew what she was like. So I tried to explain it to Stallmaster. I said, I don't care. You know, she's got to have a presence. She has to be lovable, huggable, fuckable. I said, you know, that's what it's all about. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and she has to be a guardian angel to this guy. Mm-hmm. So he says, oh, let me, let me think, let me think. And all of a sudden, he says, I found a girl. All she did is she had a walk-on with Eli Wallach in a, in a TV movie called The Wall. She didn't mm-hmm. even say any dialogue. But she's got potential there. And I said, really? He says, let me bring her in for a reading. Well, the day he brought her in, by luckily, Tommy was there. And she walked through the door, and I looked at her, and I said, Jesus, even if she can't act, I'm just going to have her there. <laughs> I'll cut the dialogue. And God believe, you know, she was able to act. And Tommy sat down and read with her, and she was brilliant. And, you know, after the two, two three days of dailies, her agent, you know, was begging me, I want the dailies. I want to send them over there to Paramount. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next thing you know, she's got baby, you know, it's, you know, John Sales' movie. Right. And she's in there with Madonna, you know. And, uh, and she was off running on her own. And on the construction of, of of the screenplay, so was it uh, from the early earliest drafts? Was it uh, the character that's uh, inspired by by your interaction with with the the family and so forth? Was that always going to be in the story of the the, the filmmaker? The Larry well, the Daniels? first forty the first forty pages of Norman's script I threw away. Okay. <laughs> that's because Norman also realized the first forty pages. You know, it was like a novel. We didn't need it in a film. Mm-hmm. You know, all you needed was that plane arriving, that evil force coming into this Mormon community, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the characters meeting. So, you know, from the very beginning, the, the character of Gilmore was directed the way I perceived them. 
not the way the real Gilmore was, because he was like a piece of lard, like a piece of soap and a dish. I mean, he'd been beaten up in prison for 20 years, but I, I envisioned him as a character who had a certain amount of vitality and cruelty, but there was also a, a human side to him that you had to uncover step by step yourself. And, uh, you know, that was um, my direction and, and Tommy Lee Jones' brilliant performance. I mean, any suggestion I made, he took it 10 yards uh, further. Every mm-hmm. time I made a suggestion, you know, he scored a touchdown with it. Right. And I mean, uh, we had our dis- we had our disagreements. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the end result, the disagreements were minor compared to the agreement. And tell me, uh, what was the uh, what were the discussions when it came to the depiction of of the two murders? Because they're very matter of fact, unglamorous, very horrifying. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, I'd, I'd seen a lot of murders in my life as a journalist. Mm-hmm. I'd seen a lot of police arrests in my life, and it wasn't the way television was. Right. I mean, even the arrest of Tommy Lee Jones was just so simple and quiet and laying on the road, you know. So I did it as reality, and mm-hmm. I know what murders are. Sometimes they're just, uh, you know, just matter of fact. You know, well, the first guy was killed. It was easy to kill the second guy. But yet... You know, the, the murder itself is what I call the foreplay. What happens after the murder is the orgasm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in each of those scenes, it's the effect of the murder that blows you away. You know, in the second murder with Benny Bushnell, you know, his heart, the, the blood squirting from his heart and the body and his, his wife with the hand trying to stop the blood from coming out of his body. I mean, there's the violence, not in the actual shot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I directed these things as I experienced them in life. As a, as a photojournalist, hmm. you know, I've been around a few murders in my life. And so, uh, cause, and it seems to me that the second half of the film uh, uh, really, uh, it, 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 it's really the big payoff. This whole kind of, it really builds up the tension of all those scenes in prison uh, I'm I'm curious what was how how surreal was it to recreate the actual execution was that I'm assuming I would assume that would, that was probably the most difficult scene emotionally for you to kind of recreate or was it well, so number one you should understand that this entire film was filmed in all the real locations mm-hmm. in Utah the, the the attorney general and the governor thought the book was fair uh, they opened up the prison. We shot in ma- in maximum security. We shot every single place where that story took place. When you're in the visitor's room in that film, that's the real visitor's room. When you're in the cell block, you're in the real cell block. Uh, the only thing that was recreated was the actual scene of him being executed. I felt that that wasn't fair to do it on the prison grounds. So, mm-hmm. in fact, I built it in a warehouse. But again, that was like a, a military operation. It was matter of fact. It went by the numbers. Uh, you know, I had witnessed the execution, and I have to tell you, uh, there was nothing uh, that extraordinary about it. Less is more. The fact right. that it, the way it was is what made it so powerful. There was nothing intruding on it. 
I mean, if you, you just see the way we scored it. I mean, Waylon Jennings did a brilliant job, and, and so did John Kakavas with the underscore. We, we just held back the music, and we just let it uh, be there. It's the same thing like the end of the film when Nicole gets out of the nuthouse. Who drives up to pick her up? Larry Scheller does. Takes her to California. Why? To start the interviews, which is the basis of the book and the film. Right. Um, so what was the machinations in that NBC got this miniseries, but you also, internationally, you released this director's cut, if you will. Well, in fact, the director's cut, the feature-length film, was released before the NBC miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the film was shown, uh, you know, all over Europe, uh, uh, Bronson, uh, uh, it was his first film that he bought for Virgin Films, uh, and then it aired in the fall on NBC in a longer version. Uh, there were some additional characters that had been written into the script. We had the material. Uh, the Rance Howard, uh, Ron Howard's father that plays the detective, doesn't really exist in the feature version. Gilmore uh, uh, picks up a couple of girls. You only see one of them in the feature version. Uh, you don't see him hanging out with young kids uh, trying to be a teenager in, in the uh, feature version. But I can tell you that uh, the feature version is what Norman and I perceived. We're very proud of the television version. It's more sociological. It has a little more environment. Uh, and uh, both of them, you know, uh, stand alone. And, uh, you know, I'm just proud that... Uh, you know, Paramount decided to to release the film. You know. Yeah. Well, and um, just you know, now that you know it's been 25 years later after all of this, I'm curious, what is the, what was your, uh, re- uh, response, or what was your reaction when um when Gary Gilmore's brother Mike uh, Michael Gilmore wrote his uh, memoir of this of this of their family history. Well, number one, I thought Shot in the Heart was a brilliant book. It mm-hmm. was about whether violence is in the genes, really, and whether Michael can ever get married and have children because he's scared that, you know, he may produce an offspring with violence. And I thought it was a, bri- a brilliant uh, approach to it. That's the subtext of the whole book. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, Michael was very kind to me in the book, uh, saying that uh, he, he learned more about his own mother listening to my interviews than he knew from his own life experiences. Uh, so I'm very proud of Michael's book. I think it's an important book. It tells the other story, the history of the family, uh, which we only touch upon in the book. Look, I've got to run with my grandkids. Uh, I hope you don't mind, but you know, well, call me again if you need me. Well, I, I appreciate your time, uh, Mr. Schiller. Thank you so much for com- coming on the show and talking about this wonderful film that's now on DVD. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And 
Oh. 